So my name is Dr. Lulu Alkaoud. I'm, I'm hosting the session for today. I am uh, in the general surgery program in the uh, general surgery bo uh, board in Kuwait. Um, I'm happy here to, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Saoud Zaid. He's a trauma surgeon, critical, critical care and general surgeon in Kuwait. Um, he will be giving us a lecture about um, head and neck trauma. It'll be on two sessions to uh, today and on Wednesday. But there's a few things that I would like to uh, tell everyone before we start. Um, I want you guys on the chat panel to change the to change everything to all panelists and attendings, where it says two. Um, can you change that option to all panelists and attendings so everyone can see the question if you have any questions? Um, and also, uh, Dr. Saud will have uh, a few questions during the session. So um, I need you guys to respond in the chat icon, not the question and, a uh, question and answer icon, this chat icon. Um, also, if you have any questions, you can use the chat box, that same box, um, although we prefer the questions towards the end. Um, and also for everyone, there's a certificate of attending. So um, everyone needs to sign in and with in their full name so that we can, we can give you the certificate with the full name on it, not with nicknames or short names. And also, um, uh, if you guys signed in with a nickname, can you sign out and sign back in with the full name? So we can write it on the certificate and you need to attend the whole session uh, for you to be able to get the certificate. Um, and that's it. Do you have any questions? No, uh, you can answer the questions in the chat here. And there is again, there will be a poll, so you can answer the questions in the poll. But if you have any questions for Dr. Saud, you can type it in the chat here. So, Dr. Saud, can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Yep, I can hear you. Okay. Do you want to? Do you want? Do you want to start? Yep. Let's get started. Okay, that's perfect. So we can share your screen. Hello, everyone. Uh, for those of you who know me, you know that this is my home. I literally live in hell sometimes. Uh, can everybody hear me fine or no? Okay. Y'all yeah, can hear me? Great, excellent. So this is really where I live. It's a bunch of boxes and a bunch of books. Um, today we'll be starting a two-part series. I'd like to thank everybody for attending. Uh, it's very flattering that there are about 100 people here. Um, the first part's gonna be about brain trauma. Uh, the second part is gonna be more so about um, face, head, and neck injuries in general, and soft tissue injuries around the cranium. Uh, we'll start in the center, work our way out. Uh, that's basically the plan for the next couple of days. If you have any questions, uh, I'll have about five minutes at the end for questions. There's a lot of content to get through. And um, I'd like to apologize because I did not have enough time to complete the lecture until recently. So if the polls don't work or something doesn't work correctly, it's all my fault. Uh, so for today's session, um, I was hoping to talk about I was hoping to talk about brain trauma in general. Like I said, in terms of disclosures, it was kind of short notice because I had a very long call. Um, feel free to ask me any questions, uh, whether it's uh, you know something to do with uh, the ICU aspect, the surgery aspect, or the technical aspect of working in the emergency room with these cases. Um, in terms of our objectives, there's a lot to get through. So uh, I was asked to talk about classification systems for head traumas. Uh, I was also asked to talk about the initial management. 
and uh, about uh, basal skull fractures and associated injuries, certain findings that are worrisome on CT scans or clinical exam, uh, non-bleed uh, trauma-related conditions that can happen in these patients, the indications for imaging, uh, high ICP, how to treat it and detect it, and any other symptoms and signs. That's about, usually that's about three or four lectures for any curriculum. Uh, I'm gonna try and get it done in about, uh, let's say an hour, maybe an hour and 15, uh, with the questions and everything else going on. So our scope is not pre-hospital management. Uh, it's not intraoperative management. It's not damage control techniques. It's the in-hospital management, the recess and the ICU, and then it's the exams, where you get asked in the exams, and some more stuff that you need to know for the exams. Uh, in terms of references, uh, my main references are uh, the Trauma Brain Foundation guidelines and uh, the guidelines center around uh, prognostication of injuries, uh, the management of uh, severe brain injuries in general, and the guidelines for when to operate. And that's basically where uh, most of the references are from, unless I write down something at the bottom. In terms of the overview of what happens with a brain trauma patient in general, so in, in trauma, um, we tend to obsess over uh, story arcs for patients and trajectories for how they're going to land and where things are going and things like that. And in terms of uh, brain injury patients, uh, we have a golden hour, just like most trauma patients, where we see the primary brain insult and how it can hurt the patient and how to make time-sensitive decisions within that first hour. To be able to make those decisions, we don't need a lot. We kind of need to find a classification system, get a prognostication, and then decide on a CT scan and begin some therapeutics. But nothing big yet. The secondary brain insults is where it's at. For us in trauma, in terms of the areas where we're still researching things, we still have a little bit of nuanced thought, and that usually involves questions about how to intervene surgically, whether or not to intervene surgically, uh, any medical interventions that need to be done, and follow-up imaging. And the long-term prognosis is supportive care, therapy, and rehab. And that typically takes 90 days. For the scope of this talk, we're just going to concentrate on what we do in the resuscitation room, what we do in the ICU, and what we do in the OR. We're not going to delve into uh, the rehab, because the rehab on its own would probably be something that's way out of my league. I'm not very qualified at it. I think that uh, physiatrists and physiotherapists will probably be able to give you a much better um, sort of uh, idea of how that works and, and how, how, uh, how to address that. But in general, um, you know, I would say that the rehab part is something that is not very well explored or very well studied. And, you know, I might talk about that at a later date if I'm requested to, but it's not something that's within the scope of your exams either. For our first part, we're just going to talk about the primary brain insults, starting with the uh, classification systems, uh, prognosis, and, and the therapeutics, and the golden hour. So when you talk about traumatic brain injuries, up until, I'd say, this point, many of us were told that traumatic brain injuries are uh, subdural, subarachnoid, extradural, uh, and um, parenchyma, or intraventricular. And those were the bleeds that we were taught because there was some utility to teaching them in that way. Uh, nowadays, we have a slightly different classification system where I would contend that knowing 
the difference between a penetrating trauma and a blood trauma might be more important. And the reason why is because they really are different beasts with a lot in common. It's kind of like a gallbladder polyp and a gallbladder stone. They have the same pathology. Effectively, the definitive surgical management is very, very similar. But the approach to the workup is very different in terms of how you prognosticate and what you should do in the trauma bit. So this is the traditional sort of uh, classification system that we know. We talk about different types of hemorrhages according to the areas in the anatomy that's involved. So we talk about intraparenchymal hematomas, ventricular hematomas, subarachnoids, subdurals, and epidurals. But that may not translate well to what we do in the resuscitation room. So let's talk about our first case. It's uh, All my cases are 27-year-olds for some reason. I don't know what happened today. 27-year-old uh, patient presents with a shotgun injury to the head. Uh, he is tachycardic. His systolic is 180. He's satting fine, but he is gasping. And his GCS is three because he's not doing anything but breathing. And this is the scene that you have in front of you. Obviously, because you're all good trauma surgeons, the first thing you do is address the airway and assess the pupils uh, without uh, sedation. You find that his pupils are dilated slightly and one of them is sluggishly reactive, but you're not sure what you're seeing there. And clearly with this type of injury, you're a bit worried. You decide to intubate right off the bat. You deal with the breathing and you deal with the circulation. When I say you deal with the circulation, I don't mean just two large bore IVs and some crystalloid. I mean figuring out how to control this massive area of bleeding. And that's sort of the difference between white belt level and blue belt level trauma. It's that you recognize that this bleeding is gonna be the reason why you don't get to CT. You then move on to do your disability where you're assessing for gross limb movement. Personally, I go for moving and sensation grossly intact. Exposure with a log roller rectal exam to check for rectal tone, which in this case is completely absent. And you do a secondary survey in adjuncts. Now, this is what the patient looks like by the time you've done that process. You can see that we have some form of temporary hemostasis and the enemy of good is perfect. You can also see that I did not move him from the, from the paramedic stretcher yet. This is the paramedic stretcher, the patient is still on there. And the reason why is because there's no utility to doing that until you've arrested the bleeding and you've secured the airway. And these should be our management priorities because a fair bit, I would say, six out of 10 of our non-survivable mortalities in Adan, when I was working there, were head injuries. And most of them died because of a lack of an ability for us to sustain them through the initial period if they died in recess. If they made it out of recess, they had other reasons, but the literature also supports the same notion, that to get them out of recess, you need to control the bleeding and control the airway, especially if it's a brain trauma, whether it's blunt or it's penetrated. Now, my question to you is, and you know, I think you can either chat it in or pull it in, I'm fine with whatever. In terms of imaging and adjuncts, which would you deem essential for this patient? A chest X-ray and a pan scan? A chest X-ray, a pelvic X-ray, or and a pan scan? a chest x-ray, a CT brain, or a chest x-ray, pelvis, fast, and pan scan? Which of these would you deem to be the most important be-all and end-all, have-to-be-done type of situation? So this is extremely interesting. So for me, this is quite interesting uh, that for the most part, 
people think that all you need to do is a chest x-ray and a CT brain. I'm very happy that a, a whole bunch of you also think that uh, it would make sense uh, to do a full ATLS protocol, including a PAN scan. Including a PAN scan. And the reason why I think it's, it's particularly good is because, you know, although there's a matter of debate here and there's some contention, there are two big schools of thought. The first school of thought is a CT brain is what's going to save this patient's life. He came in with a history from the paramedics, and therefore, I know what I'm doing. Let's get that CT brain. A chest texture is the only prerequisite to make sure that there's no pneumothorax and my ET tube is in the right place. That is not wrong in most trauma centers. That is wrong in certain trauma centers where they spend a lot of time dealing with penetrating head injuries. And the reason why is because we tend to have a classification system where we've been fooled before. And that's why the other half of you, give or take, have talked about uh, chest x-rays and uh, pelvic x-rays, fast ultrasound and pan scan. So I ended up doing a chest x-ray for this guy and a pelvic x-ray. And lo and behold, he has one shotgun pellet that has penetrated into his pelvis and impacted there on his hip. So this patient is no longer an isolated head injury. And all of a sudden now, we're dealing with a far more complicated problem. And if you'd taken him to CT scan and he dropped his pressure, you would have wished you would have done this fast that showed you that the patient had free fluid. Now, with that in mind, which one, where would you go with this patient? Would you do a, a CT of the abdomen first? Would you do a PAN scan first? Would you do a laparotomy and then a scan? Or would you do a CT brain and then a laparotomy? Knowing that the patient's blood pressure is still maintained, he's actually hypertensive at this point, and that you have some control of the bleeding of the head, what would you do first? And be honest, there's no right and wrong answer here. Like with the first thing, there is a matter of debate here. So again, this is very good because what this tells me is that, you know, you're just as confused as a lot of us as attendings are and experts, people who call themselves experts in trauma are. In general, the right answer for the previous one, uh, Masarat, is to uh, perform a chest X-ray and an X-ray pelvis. And once you've done those, then address the concern of the fast ultrasound and then go to CT if you want to go to CT. Because you have a projectile with multiple pellets as opposed to a single bullet. And yes, Miriam, he is stable and does not need steroids, so it's okay. In this particular case, because of the fact that the patient is stable and we knew that there was an abdominal pathology, we made the decision that we're gonna to go to laparotomy. And the question was whether to do the laparotomy and then go to the, do the CT brain or not. We decided to do the CT brain first because we had a window and this is what the scalp film showed. Right? And you can see that he has multiple projectiles here, a whole bunch of them. He's got like uncountable number of pellets. You can also see that he has an open skull fracture, basically. And in addition to that, you can see that the brain is hypoperfused. And so therefore, We needed to do a CT angio. And you can see that he had the circle of willis that was intact on the CT angio. 
And based on this, we decided to take him to the OR for formal laparotomy and uh, address the abdominal injury, which was a small liver injury and a small mesenteric tear. Uh, we then dealt with the brain. And uh, um, you know, the question becomes, how common is it for this presentation to happen? I know Nasser was asking you know, whether we should be doing these things regularly. The question is not whether or not to get the chest x-ray, x-ray pelvis and fast ultrasound, it's when to get them. And unfortunately, this case is uh, the rule rather than the exception. When you look at all-comer data, even in war zones, fragmentatious injuries account for 62% of head traumas. Fragmentatious meaning that there's more than one projectile there, okay? Of those, only 2% have isolated head injuries. Most of them have other injuries. And of those, whether you're in a war zone or not, 10 to 20% will have a head or neck injury that is surgically correctable. And if it's not surgically correctable, they will die. So if you look at the killed in action data from the first Gulf War, the killed in action data tells you that the, most of the patients will die from non-surgically correctable torso injuries, i.e. aortic or venous injuries of big named vessels, or they will die of CNS injuries. And many of them will have other concurrent injuries like we talked about. So our local experience seems to mirror that in Hadam. Uh, the data is embargoed because we're gonna publish it very soon. Uh, everybody should download the paper. It's a very good paper. Not because I wrote it, but because one of my residents wrote it. And I think it's really, really good. Um, but in general, I would say, our local experience has been the same. In penetrating trauma, we have of the head, we have a second injury someplace else. Part of it is also because in the civilian population, penetrating traumas to the head are mislabeled and are usually combined head and neck and torso injuries. And I'll explain that in a second. Never forget that in these patients, the priorities are airway, breathing, and circulation for the primary survey. Disability and exposure are secondary priorities. But in your secondary survey, tetanus toxoid, antibiotics, controlling the bleed in other places, doing the blood gas to see whether or not your patient is actively bleeding, and addressing the craniectomy early, making the decision to operate early, all play a hand in treating your patient and in producing good mortality outcomes. Not all patients are equal, but have a low threshold to scan the brain. Anybody with a laceration across the head should get a CT brain by any means based on current data. And I can actually, um, you know, argue that point uh, fairly definitively. Adil, yes. In all penetrating wounds, you should consider tetanus toxoid because you don't know how the penetrating wound happened and you don't know whether or not there is uh, metal involved and because the cost benefit is there, especially if your can, patient can't give a history. And as you can clearly see with the first patient, there was a hole in the head and it's very hard to give a history when you have a hole in the head. When you're dealing with uh, single projectile injuries, uh, you should zone in on that area and, and treat it first. So you should get the CT brain first. When you're dealing with blunt injuries, when you're dealing with shrapnel injuries, when you're dealing with multiple projectiles, you know, it's very hard not to get a pan scan in these patients. And the data seems to support it, but the data is military literature. Prognosis in brain injuries in general relies on the GCS, the pupils, and the systolic blood pressure drip dropping below 90 off of vasopressors. If you have any of these three, your mortality is tenfold higher from any brain injury. So if your GCS is below six, 
or if you have pupils that are somewhat dilated and sluggish and non-reactive, your mortality is now hitting 70% uh, in hospital, 50% uh, in the trauma bed. Systolic blood pressure less than 90 means that even with a mild to moderate brain injury, your mortality risk is higher and your complication risk is higher. Certain injuries such as this with brain content coming out clearly with an anterior injury that crosses the circle of Willis, 100% mortality. Injuries such as this with the laceration and no clear cut exposure of the scalp with the temporalis muscle and the frontalis muscle exposed has an extremely low mortality. Injuries such as this with a clear depressed skull fracture has an intermediate mortality and, dictate, and is dictated mainly by us and how we treat these patients in a sense of urgency. The prognosis in penetrating injury cannot be dictated without a CT boom. And that's because you need to see the trajectory and you need to see whether or not across the circle of woods. Something that looks like this that goes anterior and posterior from the optic chiasm area, where I have a unibrow here, all the way around the back over here, is more likely to traverse the circle of wheels, especially if it goes through the occipital frontal region, because of the fact that it could potentially hit the circle of Willis, like you can see here, and cause major torrential avascular problems that will lead to impending death. Something that's on the periphery that scribes like this across this area, less likely to cause something of that nature, because the patient will decompress themselves and the circulation in the brain is actually preserved. You can see that this patient walked in like this. He had this CT brain initially, very snazzy 3D reconstruction, and then ended up doing his own craniectomy by pushing the bone out. And the rest of his brain actually remained quite viable. The patient survived to leave. Part of it is because he's young, but the other part is because these patients tend to do their own craniectomies. So I would argue that a CT angio is a must. My problem is that the literature does not support this 100% because the literature is underpowered for penetrating head injuries. That's the main reason why. When we talk about blunt trauma, traditionally, I would have spent a very long time telling you about thunderclap headaches and subarachnoid hematomas, telling you about a lucid interval in, in uh, subdural hematomas, and telling you about uh, the middle meningeal artery and being smacked across the head in a pinpoint area over here in epidural hematomas and about hypertension in intraparenchymal hematomas. Well, you have to ask yourself what the point is in these situations, especially when in modern times, we have access to neurosurgeons 24-7, 365. Granted, granted, and I understand completely that our neurosurgeons work out of one center and that they're very overwhelmed, but we have better access than we did in 1987 when I would have spent four hours talking about this issue. And so the next question I'd like to address when to get a PAN scan, I want to get an isolated CT brain in the context of blunt trauma. So which of these patients should get a PAN scan? A 55-year-old with a sudden collapse in the middle of a treatment center toilet that was witnessed, or a shopping center toilet, a 13-year-old GCS of 15 who recalls the event after falling off his bike, or a 20-year-old college student, which of them should get a PAN scan? So, excellent. The vast majority got this one right. Oh, oh, you're failing me now. And we're back again. Excellent. Very good. So, yeah. So, the 20-year-old with a diminished GCS and un 
recalled event is probably the one who's most appropriate to get a PET scan. Now, which of these is more likely to benefit from an isolated CT brain, provided that you did full ATLS, chest x-ray, everything else? Next question. Which one of them would probably benefit from a CT brain? You don't need to answer it in the panel, in the polls, you can answer it through the chat. So um, I would say that the biggest change, the biggest change that we've had is uh, the development of criteria that allow us not to miss head injuries. And those include the Canadian CT head rule, the New Orleans criteria, and the Nexus 2 criteria. In general, these criteria are not designed to lower the number of CT scans that you do. In general, they're actually designed to allow us to not have somebody go home because we don't think that they have a thunderclap headache or because they have a lucid interval and come back dead. That's what they're designed to do in general. And so as a brief summary for these criteria, anybody with a headache, a GCS below 15 for two hours, a suspected skull fracture, and the signs of a skull fracture are raccoon eyes, um, Betel sign around the area, there's some mechimosis, uh, repeated vomiting or CSF rhinorrhea. Anybody with any form of amnesia or any form of behavior that is noted to be abnormal or a dangerous mechanism or who may have a toxicology problem should have a CT brain done. That's the consensus among all these criteria. The particularities of them depend on the center. So the Nexus 2 is designed for hospital flow. They scan the most, but they get the people out the most quickly. The New Orleans criteria is designed to not miss any surgically correctable or medically correctable condition that might require monitoring. The Canadian CT head rule needs to have two hours of monitoring to make sure that your GCS isn't corrected, but has the highest chance for keeping somebody going in terms of not missing anything, right? It's less likely to miss. For PAN scans, and when to do a whole body CT scan, the most studied is the Western Trauma Association algorithm. It's in fact one of the very few randomized control trials. It's based on the REACT trial. And what it showed was that you're less likely to miss injuries and the patients are likely to be discharged quicker with no mortality benefits. But in that trial, it, we talked about uh, major mechanisms such as deceleration injuries, falls of one and a half meters, pelvic fractures, long bone fractures, the seatbelt sign, first rib fractures, scapular fractures, and sternal fractures, being reasons to extend from just doing a CT brain to doing a PAN scan. Uh, it's 1.5 stories, which is about, I would say, I don't know. I don't know the difference between stories and meters. My personal cutoff in meters, Bedr, is about, I would say, 15 meters, 10 meters, sorry, 15 uh, feet, 10 feet, so that's about three meters, right? three, maybe five meters. Uh, perfect, yes, whatever they said. Four, four and a half meters it is. The debate is about the metrics, that's, that's great. So yeah, about four and a half meters. And any significant bone fractures that, that would lead to that sort of being an issue. What's interesting is neurological deficits are about, the second most common reason why you miss injuries, and that's why they're included here as well, as well as distracting injuries. So distracting injuries are people who are screaming from pain because they broke their foot and therefore you can't examine their balance. The literature says that in these patients, you're more likely to detect missed injuries and your missed injury rate drops from about 20% to 
to 5% if you apply prospectively, right? The other thing is that in our data locally at Adan, and this is not embargoed data, what we found is somebody who comes in with a significant mechanism of injury, complaining of pain in the shoulder or pain in the chest, when you apply these criteria, you're likely to find a brain injury and you're likely to find a skull fracture. Our intention to treat is not there, but you're more likely to find a brain injury. This is very important in terms of documentation for disability and things like that and medical legality. When you talk about the subclassifications of types of brain bleed, you know, I'm going to talk about this, but I don't feel strongly about it. Does that make sense? Subdural bleeds uh, are considered venous bleeds. They tend to marble a lot. They have layering and they have a concave shape or a crescenteric shape. Epidural or extradural bleeds have a convex shape. When I was a medical student, I remembered it like this. Convex has an X in it. Extradural has an X in it, and that's why they're convex. They're usually lens-like. They're mainly arterial in origin, and they tend to expand a lot more quickly because they're arterial in origin. The middle meningeal artery is about the size of the radial artery, and so that gives you the math. And they tend to blow pupil a lot quicker than other types of bleed. In addition to that, they usually do in the trauma bay, actually. In addition to that, there are also bleeds that are more associated with a sudden blunt object trauma. Subarachnoid bleeds have a fair amount of bleeding within the parenchyma and around the parenchyma and tend to evolve with time. But the other thing about subarachnoid bleeds is that they're associated with a particular type of mechanism of injury called the coup contra coup injury. Now, when that happens, you have an initial point of impact with an initial bleed on the coup side. Coup is French for the side. And contra coup is the other side. You get the brain smacked and moves across to the side, to the other side, and you have a secondary bleed on the other side. And the reason why that happens is literally the same reason as why when you take a hammer and you hit the bottom of a cylinder or a metal object, you get an echo and you get sound waves that change and distort on the other side. This is literally what happens within a coup contra coup injury. And the level of reflection and dissipation of force is based on how big the head is. And that's called the alpha angle. Intraventricular bleeds are rarely primary bleeds in trauma. They're usually bleeds that occur within the subarachnoid space or intraparenchymal bleeds that are then absorbed into the ventricles and become cystic hygromas. So with all due respect to certain radiologists, when somebody tells me that there's a, an improvement in a subarachnoid bleed, but there's an interval increase in intraventricular hemorrhage, you know, I take that with a grain of salt. I personally believe that these uh, patients, and a lot of neurosurgeons and neurologists also believe this, have a subarachnoid bleed that has been absorbed into the ventricular space, and I don't think it causes that much worry. The problem that I have with blunt injuries is that they're associated with things like this. They're, they're associated, especially subarachnoid bleeds, with base of skull fractures and horrendous CSF rhinorrhea, like what you're seeing here. Right? Everybody seeing the video? Yeah? Great. Uh, I, I really like this video because it brings the point home never to put the NG in. I, I show this video, you're not going to put an NG in. It's done. Right? These associated injuries, the most sensitive test for them is a CT. And the reason why it's the most sensitive test is because of the fact that the CT will show you, number one, if you have a facial fracture, number two, if you have an orbital injury, and number three, whether or not you have communication with the brain. Because communication with the brain means that you're no longer dealing with a blunt injury. You are now dealing 
with a penetrating measure. And your management is going to be the same as what we talked about for penetrating measures. Okay. Depressed skull fractures are also associated with seizures. When they occur, you should control the seizure, and we'll talk about that in a second, but you should probably repair them definitively early. In every single other case, because you've decompressed the brain to an extent, as you can see here in this CT scan for that young gentleman, because you've had a chance to decompress the brain from the nature of the fracture, and the brain has been decompressed into the sinuses, do not expect these patients to lateralize. For the most part, the brains do okay, except for in the cases of depressed skull fractures. As you can see here, the patient kind of did his own marsupialization of his sinuses. He even did a little bit of his own craniectomy. He has a little bit of a depressed skull fracture, but it's not that bad. Treat them like open in the trauma base. So give them your tetanus, your antibiotics. Start them on a hypertonic therapy if they need it. We'll talk about that in a second. And if they're depressed or seizure forming, then uh, treat surgically, certainly very early on, but start your anti-epileptics. Secretly between you, me, and four walls, a trade secret here, propofol were burst suppressed even the worst epilepsy. But you shouldn't use propofol as first line. It's usually third line in the epilepsy literature. So if you're really stuck with a seizure forming patient and you can't get them to the CT scan and you're really worried, Intubating them with propofol may not be a bad thing to do. You didn't hear it from me, but it may not be a bad thing to do. The definitive repair should be delayed until the brain is settled. So belly before brain, because you need to maintain the patient's blood pressure, like we talked about in the first case scenario, but brain before face, because you need a functioning brain to be able to enjoy any facial features that you have. So let's talk about another type of associated injury with the second case that we have. It's a 27-year-old patient. I told you they were all 27. He comes in as a GCS of six. You intubate, you perform your primary and secondary survey. He has no other injuries of note. His fast is negative. His chest x-ray is negative. His x-ray pelvis does not show any, and I mean any, uh, form of fractures. Patient's absolutely stable, and you do the CT brain for his GCS of six. And as you can see, there are a couple of dots here and there, but there's nothing very definitive. Right? You repeat the CT brain 24 hours later, it's the same. You repeat it 48 hours later, it looks the same. You even have a CT angiogram done because you're that good, and your CT angiogram of the head and neck is okay. After three days, his GCS is still stable, and it's still six. What do you do next? What's the next test that should be done? Okay, I'm seeing a lot of A's. This is very good. I'm liking the fact that we're seeing a lot of A's here. Okay. Uh, I don't know, video's not working. It's fine. You'd be seeing me smiling right now. It's good that the, mission, the information's getting through because 10 years ago, this would have been a problem. Diffuse exonal injuries look like a normal CT brain to the untrained eye. To somebody who looks at these things on a regular basis, diffuse axonal injuries can be seen on a CT brain. There are indirect signs, such as mild changes to the tracts, hyperlucency, petechial hemorrhages that you see around the point of impact. And there is a theory that these patients are having more advanced versions of what we see in concussions. 
So concussions and diffuse axonal injury, there is a theory, and this theory has some weight to it, that they're more or less a disease spectrum rather than separate diseases, right? Obviously, the MRI is the correct answer, and doing the MRI will have shown you hyperlucency and inflammation. And the idea here is that what you have is a disjointment of the myelin sheaths, which are the wires that connect the smart neurons in the brain, that connects the different parts of the brain together. You have shearing forces that rip them apart. This causes some inflammation, calcium de deposition, and then you cannot, you cannot conduct electricity in your brain anymore. The action potentials do not go through. And this is just an experimental model that I put up because I have no life. And I, these are the issues that keep me up at night. And uh, the brown stuff is calcium deposition. And you can see that, uh, you know, you have a bunch of very healthy neurons, but nowhere for the signal to go anymore. Because you have shearing forces that are ripped them apart. That is the most boring slide in this whole talk. I swear, every single other slide is going to be awesome and amazing. Okay. Now, there is a large body of data that says that doing CT scans is enough for us to detect diffuse axonal injury clinically. This data is relatively new. It's from the prognosis paper from the Trauma Brain Foundation guidelines. And it's from the Marshall paper in 1991. Until about the 90s, we all felt that you need to get an MRI after the CT scan for any stable patient to see the extent of damage, quote, unquote. We now know that that's not necessary true and that a CT scan with a good clinical sense will tell you enough. There's also a growing body of data from the 2011 paper from the same group, the Marshall group, that tells us that grades one through to three, there's no difference in outcomes and that you should support these patients no matter what you do. This kind of concludes our golden hour session. Next I'll be talking about, and I'll try and make this relatively quick because I know that we're running out of time to an extent, Next, I'll be talking about secondary brain insults and how to prevent them. So in general, secondary brain insults are what lead to death in the ICU and what lead uh, to brain herniation. Yes, you can get blossoming of a subarachnoid, but the blossoming of a subarachnoid can be deferred if you are smart, direct, and adept. Herniation occurs because of increased intracranial pressure. There's no wonder there, right? Um, it's something that we all know, I think, at a rudimentary level. What might be relatively interesting is that there are different types of herniations that can occur due to raised intracranial pressure. The most mild is uncle herniation, and that's why in a lot of radiology reports, we hear about impending uncle herniation, but have a relatively normal GCS, because uncle herniation is just a little bit of pressure on the brain that's oftentimes subclinical. So I do believe that this herniation exists. I don't think that the radiologist is overcalling, but I think that, you know, we're seeing a GCS of 14 or 15, and we're like, it's impossible that he's herniated. That's because that's just the start of the cycle. Central herniation is what you see next, and that's when you have bulging of your ventricles a little bit. Uh, Transcalibarial is when you see brain matter coming out, like the first couple of pictures that I showed you for penetrating trauma. Transtentorial will not cause a blown pupil first. Transtentorial will cause a massive headache, diminished level of consciousness first, and that's what you see with epidurals, right? You see a massive headache, it just won't stop, not a thunderclap headache, but a massive growing gnawing headache. And then you see them start to like slur speech, have a motor deficit, and while you're going to scan, they blow pupil. You then have your upward herniations and your tonsillary herniations, which are very, very bad. 
Epidural hematomas are probably the best way to demonstrate uh, herniation because they're very fast, because they're radial artery bleeds for all intents and purposes in the brain. They're big named vessel bleeds. By far the first sign of a very bad prognosis is a blown pupil. And once you've had a blown pupil, it might be too late to act. It's because the difference between an intracranial volume where you don't have a blown pupil and one where you do is based on an elastance curve. And once you've hit the limits of the elastance curve, your intracranial pressure will go from 20 to 80 with a very small amount of volume change, about 20% change in volume. And in an epidural hematoma, that translates to time and a rate of bleeding. And I would contend that you can't wait on this. You have to act early in some way. There has to be something that you do. And the reason why is because you have only 20% of the time from when the epidural hematoma started to prevent this patient's death. Now, how do we measure ICP? And why do we measure ICP? We measure ICP because it is the only, the only thing that can prognosticate for us once your patient is in the ICU. Whereas in the initial CT scan, we have other markers that tell us whether this guy's gonna survive or not. In the ICU, by far, the most important marker is raised ICP on either CT scan findings or on other methods of measuring. This is because the Monroe-Kelly principle dictates that once you have a slight rise in the ICP, your venous congestion begins to become less. Your, your, your venous side of your circulation in the brain gets pushed out. Then your CSF gets pushed out. As this occurs, your brain needs CSF to be able, and the venous side, to be able to feed the nerve cells. As that occurs and the mass effect occurs, you're choking off the nerve cells, you're creating an anaerobic cascade that's creating more edema and tissue factor release that's making things more coagulopathic. As that reaches its extremes and the mass effect compresses further, your brain gets pushed out before your arterial volume gets pushed out. And that leads to a decompensated brain. Because of this, we tend to emphasize a lot on ICP. Now, intracranial pressure monitoring can happen with fiber optic catheters, epidural transcranial catheters, Codman lines, which are catheters that sit on the top of the brain in the uh, epidural space, or ventriculostomy catheters, external ventricular drains. How many of you has anybody here put in an external ventricular drain? If you have put in an external ventricular drain, I will praise you. And anybody who knows me knows that I do not lay on praises lightly, right? Has anybody done that? If you have, please mention it in the chat. Okay. Yep, an EVD. Has anybody put one in? Badr Shaban, I praise you, sir. I have praised you before, I think, but I praise you twice now. Badr Shaban, I praise you twice. So, external ventricular drains are like the chest tubes of the brain. They are both diagnostic and therapeutic. They are pretty much essential. The problem, and the reason why we don't have them in Kuwait is because external ventricular drains, uh, many of you put one in, I praise you too, but not that much, just a little bit. The reason why external ventricular drains are important is because like chest tubes, they're both diagnostic and therapeutic. The problem that we have locally here is that we're not trained to put them in and we're not trained to take care of them very well. And if you have a ventriculitis in the context of a brain bleed, your mortality is extremely high. The reason why they're important is because the waveform off of them will tell you how compliant the brain is even after a craniectomy. 
The second reason is because they allow you to drain and temporize intracranial pressure. And the third reason is because they allow for dynamic ICP monitoring and reduce the number of CT scans that you need to do, which reduces the reasons to move the patient in and out. These reasons have translated to a mortality benefit of about 10%, but have not translated to a survival to leaving the hospital benefit. So patients do better, but they don't leave the hospital necessarily. Unfortunately, in Kuwait, our best test for this is a CT scan. And the reason why is because there are lots of things that you can see on the CT scan that tell you when the patient's ICP is elevated to a point where they will be doing badly. One of the first things is a complete lack of the fourth ventricle, as you can see here. Next, you have complete effacement of the cerebellar sulci and gyri. You have a slight congestion of the third ventricle because that area is more pliable. It's above the tentorium. And then you have what we call poor great white matter differentiation. Poor great white matter differentiation occurs across the brain globally as the perfusion goes down. And it looks like this. The one on the left, the gray white matter and the white matter look almost the same. The one on the right, you can see a difference between the gray and the white matter. Both of these patients have brain traumas, obviously. There's a bit of edema. But the one on the left is too far gone. There is no longer any cerebral perfusion, unfortunately. Whereas the one on the right, there is some cerebral perfusion left, and you should begin to address it urgently. This is because you're trying to prevent secondary brain insults. So not all neurological damage occurs from the initial insult. Secondary brain insults occur because of a lack of optimized cerebral perfusion, in addition to a lack of ability for us to be able to feed CSF and oxygen into the brain. So the brain gets most of its oxygen from the arterial side, but gets most of its nutrients from the CSF. It also lets out its content, its toxins through the CSF. So the CSF is both TPN and the kidney for the brain. There's very little that you can do to, to correct intracranial content. It's because whatever's in the brain is basically CSF, water, solid mass, and intravascular blood. We cannot correct the solid mass, so forget it. I can't like do a partial lobectomy and hope that there's a good out outcome there. We've done it a couple of times in our service. We've had patients get discharged, but they've had things like hemiplegias happen, epileptiform disorders, et cetera. You can, and you can do it as part of damage control surgery, certainly, right? Um, if you want, I can talk about damage control brain surgery at any time. It's about in a one hour talk. You can augment water using hypertonic hyperosmolar therapy. You can augment cerebral spinal fluid using dialysis catheters, but it's very experimental. And you can perform intracranial dialysis for that, but it's very experimental. And you can deal with intravascular blood volumes in order to augment cerebral blood flow arterial oxygen content, and metabolic rates. We use cerebral blood flow to augment cerebral perfusion pressure and increase oxygenation. As a rule of thumb, cerebral perfusion pressure is MAP minus ICP. And the best, quote unquote, cerebral perfusion pressure varies between 50 and 70 and is augmented based on that. However, there is a caveat. If you go beyond a certain systolic blood pressure, there is a vasoconstrictive effect that unless you have a raised ICP that you're trying to overcome, will eventually lead to a problem in terms of ischemia. So it's very important for you to understand. If you do not have a pathology that you're addressing, and if you do not have proof of a high ICP, and you're using a high riding mean arterial pressure, such as 90, 
you may not be doing your patient any favors. The word may is very important here. And it's because the literature has equipoise. There is a very good Brazilian study that has proven that a map of 90 has some benefits, but in those cases, they only do one CT brain and they don't have ICP monitoring. In many centers, we do a second CT brain if we have a deterioration level of consciousness or if we have higher ICP. Overall, hyperosmolar therapy is far more beneficial. And overall, hyperosmolar therapy has been one of the biggest drivers in non-operative management of brain injuries. Our targets are two things, sodium and osmolarity. We want a sodium that's between 145 and 150 milliosmoles per liter, and want an osmolarity of between 300 and 320. Our tools at the trade are mantle 0.25 to 1 gram per kilogram per kg, given every four hours to target, and 3% uh, saline uh, being given uh, at 150 cc aliquots for target. My cocktail for this has been to alternate between the two in four hourly intervals and hold it off once I've hit target on intervals. Now, there is some data from animal models that you can use 23% uh, saline or 7.5% saline as a resuscitative fluid. And this data comes from a kooky idea that we should be doing this if we're on the field. Do not believe this data. Do not inject 23% saline into somebody. And the reason why is because once you've injected 23% saline in 30 ml aliquots, you're going to suck all of the interstitial fluid out of their uh, organs. It's not cool. Like it's, it's almost toxicological, right? Your strategy should include maintaining a systolic blood pressure above 90, but not necessarily a map of 90. To optimize your PO2 so that it's 60 uh, milligrams or sat above 90, uh, sorry, millimeters of mercury or sat above 90. To have an ICP monitoring of some sorts, especially if your GCS is below eight. Uh, to treat the ICP if it's above 20. To give mannitol and hypertonics judiciously, and hopefully that will save lives. And to optimize your cerebral perfusion between 50 and 70. Hyperventilation is not recommended unless you're using it as a bridge. The reason why is because it doesn't really work. It kind of works transiently. Feed them early. And phenytoin is only effective in treating seizures in the early stages, but not as a prophylaxis in later stages. Steroids will kill a patient. Medium, steroids will kill a patient. Do not give steroids in the acute stage. I warned you I would bring this up. Annie told me. Question six. So let's talk about this hypothetical. Another 27-year-old patient comes in hypotensive tachycardic. You begin an MTP. Um, they have a multi-compartment hemorrhage with midline shift and brain edema. Your best strategy is to give normal saline to help resuscitate the patient, give Lasix to reduce the vascular volume and reduce the edema and bleed, to give hypertonic saline or to give mannitol first. Which of these would you give first? Please answer in the chat. So again, quite debatable. So very, very interesting, very debatable. So. This is one of those things where there's no equipoise, but let's talk about strategy. So in trauma, it's all about strategy. If I have a patient and I'm running normal vanilla ATLS and they're not a responder, they're not a responder, giving normal saline as a bridge to blood and then giving blood would be very, very good. Giving Lasix would be very, very bad no matter what. Giving hypertonic saline 
would increase your intravascular volume by sequestering more fluid, and at the same time would have some neuroprotective effect. Giving mannitol might drop the pressure to the point where you cannot perfuse the brain anymore. So if you're not giving vasopressors, and if you have a chance of active bleeding, your first line should probably be hypertonic saline and neutrometer. And certainly, in, uh, I know in Shock Baltimore now, they give hypertonics first and hemodynamically unstable. Uh, in the Shock Manual, I think it says that too now. Uh, the Trauma Brain Foundation guidelines hasn't gone strongly either way because they have to reach equipoise and consensus. But also in most of the other manuals, for local institutions, I think Jackson as well, they go hypertonic saline first in the trauma bed. Now you see this patient the next day and you've done a PAN scan for them and you see that they are normal tensive tachycardic but their base deficit is minus five, their hemoglobin is eight and they're on level fed of like 10 or 0.8 in Kuwaiti numbers. And uh, your PAN scan has shown a grade three splenic injury. What do you do with this patient? Do you give them normal saline to try and get them off of vasopressors? Uh, do you go to angio? Uh, do you do a laparotomy or do you give blood? So I'm seeing a lot of people who want to go for a laparotomy, a lot of people who want to give a trial of blood. And uh, a lot of people, more people want to go for a laparotomy. Wow, you guys are cutters. This is amazing. Uh, you know, yeah, we're talking about a little bit of people giving blood. The blood pressure, but the Shaban, the blood pressure is stable on levofed with a base deficit of minus five. I'm waiting for a better Shaban to respond because uh, I think having an attending's opinion is very interesting. We should start having debates on this too, but. So, um, stable on levofed. Okay, so interesting. So, there are certain parts of this that are not debatable. You cannot just give blood at this point because you're outside the 24 hour window. They've already failed that. Okay, giving normal saline will not help anybody. Laparotomy versus angio. In centers where the trauma has been dealt with exclusively by anesthesia and emergency medicine trauma team leaders, they've tended to go for angio. In centers where they've had it being dealt with exclusively by surgeons, they tended to go for laparotomy. In centers that are hybridized where group decisions are made, they've tended to go for laparotomies as well. So if you look at intention to treat, for the most part, people are doing laparotomies for these cases. What's also interesting is that going to angio on levofed with a brain injury in the National Trauma Data Bank has shown extremely poor outcomes. So it is no longer debatable if you look at extrapolated data. The evidence strongly suggests that if you're on vasopressors and you have a base deficit that is deviated with an abdominal pathology, you address the abdominal pathology using surgical steel. You operate on the patients. And so there is no equipoise in reality. Stable on levo is a misnomer. I have only heard this in Kuwait. If you are on levo fed, you are not stable. You are de by definition unstable. You might be made unstable because we want to deplete you intravascularly to preserve your brain, 
but we shouldn't be doing that if you have an abdominal pathology. So stable on level does not exist. And that's why that question is there. It's one of my pet peeves. I get very annoyed by it. Post-traumatic seizures, the vast majority occur within the first seven days of injury if they require any pharmacological, any surgical therapy, sorry. After seven days, they mainly require pharmacological therapy. Risk factors include a GCS less than 10 on arrival, a cortical contusion, depressed skull fracture, any type of hematoma, and a penetrating head wound. Basically, all of our patients in trauma. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough because I recently had a transfer that was started on steroids for a headache and did not do so well. Steroids, the only level one evidence in traumatic brain injury is that steroids are bad, all right? Do not give steroids. Now, lastly, I'm gonna talk about the role of surgery very briefly. The indications and the role of surgery. So there hasn't been a consensus statement since 1991. And this consensus statement uh, has not been revised until recently. There is a newer guideline that has been based on military data. And in general, if you have an acute subdural hematoma, and you have a five millimeter midline shift, clinical evidence of erased ICP, an unevaluable patient with an ICP that's elevated on CT or on monitoring, or if you have a 10 millimeter thickness or greater, you should be doing a decompressive craniectomy urgently. Surgical evacuation of the subdural hematoma should be occurring urgently because you can save the patient's life with an excellent functional outcome. Four, parenchymal injuries that are subarachnoids or subdurals that show a contusion that's greater than 20 centimeters squared or a midline shift greater than five millimeters on the CT scan, they should be treated urgently. And the reason why is because your decompressive craniectomy can save the patient's life and lead to less of a neurological deficit if the patient leaves the hospital. Bifrontal decompressive craniectomies are not good options anymore in the literature because of landmark studies, but they are included in this guideline. Bear in mind that this guideline has not been updated in 10 years. In patients with posterior fossa bleeds, if you can operate on them within the first hour and if they came in with a favorable GCS, their survival rate improves. And whenever you operate on these patients, they bleed a lot. They bleed significantly. It's very bad. They bleed a lot. There is usually a lot of torrential bleeding. And if there's any piece of advice I can give you, it comes from my alma mater, McGill. And it's not really advice. It's a really good paper where we looked at our time to craniectomy and its influence on outcomes in risk stratified patients. For the same patient, no matter what their prognosis is, good, bad, or awful prognosis, GCS of three or GCS of 15. If I take them to the CT scan within an hour and they're from the CT scan to the OR within 40 minutes, their outcomes are double as good. I would say that everybody should read that paper. I don't have time to talk about it today because of time constraints but everybody should read that paper. And remember, work right, work smart, and work fast, and do a CT scan post-op. In summary, if you are not gonna be doing the craniectomy, optimize your blood pressure to a systolic above 90, optimize your oxygenation. If your GCS is below eight, you need to do a repeat CT scan or monitor the ICP in a different way. 
Treat the ICP if it's above 20 or you have evidence of any form of cranial compression. Mannitol and hypertonics are your tools. Cerebral perfusion pressure should be between 50 and 70. Hyperventilation doesn't really work. Feed early. Phenytone only works late. Surgery works early. And steroids will cause harm and TBI. I've kind of done my best to cover everything. I think that I've covered classification, initial management, base of skull fractures, any types of other types of injuries, and high ICPs. Remember, if there's anything that you should take out of this, I know I talk very quickly and there's lots of stuff here. I'm gonna try and give you all copies of this presentation. It'll be on my own podcast as well. And I think that they have a YouTube channel. Somebody who looks like this should get the workup that they deserve. Do not give up on them. Shave their heads, prepare them for the OR, do your CT scan. And if you look at the CT, this patient will walk out of the hospital. I, I, I get very annoyed when people tell me that something that looks like this is poor prognosis. His brain was barely touched. If you do a craniectomy for him, he will walk out of the hospital. And this patient did walk out of the hospital, right? Just a preview for part two. Part two will be a lot of cool soft tissue injuries, things like this, things like this, and things like this. There'll be a lot more cases. It'll be a lot more fun, I hope. If you have any questions, uh, I'm gonna open it up, uh, type them in. And thank you for having me. Uh, thank you, Lula, for putting up with me, only doing this five minutes ago. Uh, the team here are excellent. They're very accommodating to a very busy schedule.